You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Business has been largely unregulated with their data, and they're figuring out new ways to use it. And they need some guidance on how they should be regulated. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hey, Dave. On this week's show, Ben shares news on the ability of the government to search your electronic devices at the border. I have a story about Google drawing the attention of HHS for gathering medical patient data. And later in the show, my interview with Brett Cohen. He's president and CEO at Tier One Cyber. He's got some interesting insights on some of the parallels between data security and privacy laws and environmental legislation. We want to remind you that while this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. With over 8,000 threat hunters analyzing over 65 trillion signals daily, Microsoft works tirelessly with the federal government to keep our nation's data secure. This 30-year-plus partnership is driving mission innovation that is secure by design. Whether optimizing your existing defenses or tackling advanced threats with AI, Microsoft gives you the intelligence and the automation you need to defend at mission scale. Let's work together to stay ahead of emerging threats and secure your mission anywhere. Learn more at aka.ms slash fedcyber. That's aka.ms slash fedcyber. Ben, why don't you kick things off for us this week? So we had a a big case in one of our areas of great interest, which are uh, border searches. Yeah. So obviously the Fourth Amendment prevents unreasonable searches and seizures. There's an exception that's been recognized by the Supreme Court and other courts relating to searches at the border, just because that represents sort of a special need beyond traditional law enforcement. Right. We don't want bad people or contraband to be coming into this country. So at least the feeling in the past has been we shouldn't have asked stringent requirements against searching either individuals themselves, their clothes, their body, etc. Even for U.S. citizens we're talking about. Here. Yes, this applies to U.S. citizens and U.S. persons. Right. And it was specifically the doctrine arose in the context of contraband. So whether we're bringing back drugs or items that otherwise would not make it through customs. This has become complicated when we start to discuss electronic devices. So a group of 11 plaintiffs filed a suit against the Department of Homeland Security saying that their Fourth Amendment and First Amendment rights were violated when, in a number of circumstances, Customs and Border Protection would compel people to enter in their passcode to get access to their smartphone or their personal device. The named plaintiffs in this case are U.S. persons, U.S. citizens. The Customs and Border Patrol asked this named plaintiff to unlock her phone. This woman had a religious objection to having her phone unlocked because uh, her and her daughters wear headscarves and some of the photos contained pictures of her her daughter without headscarves, which Mm. goes against her uh, religious beliefs. So she didn't want that agent to uh, be able to see those pictures. 
She and the other plaintiffs also asserted that this violated their rights against unreasonable searches and seizures. So a district court judge in Massachusetts held that uh, suspicionless searches at the border violate the Fourth Amendment, that the Mm. government has to prove some sort of individualized suspicion to search a device. And the way the prevailing law had worked prior to this decision is there were sort of different rules for two different types of searches. For a routine search, which, you know, sort of just doing like a cursory glance at somebody's phone, not actually downloading any data, but just sort of combing through somebody's pictures and social media posts, that did not require any individualized suspicion. A non-routine search did require reasonable suspicion, which, as we've talked about before, is a standard below probable cause, but it still means you have to have a reason that you want to look at that device. What this court held is that for all searches of any electronic device at our border crossings, the government needs to show reasonable suspicion. So unless they can prove that, you know, they have some reason to think that you have evidence of uh, contraband, illegal items on your phone, you know, unless they can prove that in court, then anything gleaned from that device is going to be inadmissible in a future criminal trial. And the court granted declarative and and injunctive relief, meaning Customs and Border Protection, Immigration and and Customs Enforcement are prohibited for now from doing suspicionless searches of electronic devices at our border crossings. Now, what does this mean from a practical point of view? If I'm coming back from vacation or business travel and I'm coming through the border and that border security agent decides that uh, they just don't like the look of me. By this rule, they can't make me have a, a bad day. They can't search my device. So it's always interesting talking about the practical impacts of this. If you or I were questioned by a Customs and Border Patrol agent and the guy in a scary looking uniform told us to unlock our device, we'd we'd probably unlock it. You know, if they discovered that I had text messages about all the great drugs I was able to get a hold of during my vacation to Colombia or whatever. Right. And the government tried to prosecute me because of this decision. They would suppress that evidence because this Customs and Border Patrol agent didn't have any individualized suspicion. They had no reason beyond, you know, a mere hunch that there would be evidence of criminal activity contained on that device. So I always wonder, like, is it realistic that somebody who's questioned, you know, after a 12-hour plane ride, they're at an airport, Right. Customs and Border Patrol agent comes up to them and they're like, give us your passcode, we need to check your device. Somebody's going to be like, well, I'd like to cite the recent right. district court case yes, of exactly. <laughs> Al-Assad v. Nielsen, which, by the way, is the name of the case. <laughs> so, you know, there's that real-world element to it. Certainly somebody who did say that is, is now fully within their rights to do so. There is some sort of complicated procedural element to this. Well... The declaratory relief here, the declaration that these types of suspicionless searches violate our constitutional rights, that has nationwide applicability. The injunction, which is the order that would prevent Customs and Border Patrol from instituting these searches, it's not entirely determined yet whether that will apply nationwide. Hmm. There's going to be a separate hearing to make that determination because the plaintiffs in this case who sued didn't include in their briefs whether they want a nationwide injunction. Although because these were 11 different plaintiffs who came in from all corners of the world and at 11 separate ports of entry into the United States, it seems to me that it would make sense to have some nationwide applicability. One of the people who I believe is one of the plaintiffs, but certainly if if not, was certainly mentioned when it came to this case, was a journalist who was coming through and got his device 
searched and was basically given a hard time by, I believe it was an ICE agent, about social media posts that were critical of the government. And that was part of why this person joined this case. That's my recollection of it. To me, that sort of thing is more chilling than anything else. He was hassled. He was slowed down. He was hassled, you know, given a stern talking to by someone in authority. He was not arrested, but he was detained. Right. And, you know, that could have a chilling effect on his First Amendment activity as a journalist, as I recall from. And I've you know certainly read about the case you're talking about. I'm not sure if they were one of the plaintiffs in this case. Yeah. But they didn't have any suspicion that, you know, there was anything incriminating on this journalist's device. They just knew that this person had been critical of the government. Well, and that's not illegal. Uh, no, not yet. Oh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll see uh, if that changes by the time this episode airs. OK. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you can see how how that would have a chilling effect. And I right. think one thing that sort of brings up is how much information is actually contained on these personal devices. This is something that the Supreme Court recognized in an unrelated case, Riley v. California. We're not just carrying around collection of physical material. We're carrying around a detailed record of our entire life, our religious, our political associations. Yeah. Conversations with friends and family that exactly have nothing to do with our crossing of the border. Absolutely. So, you know, it's it's very different than physical searches, than taking apart your suitcase and checking your baggage. Right. We're talking about something that that's far more personal and intrusive. And that's something that the Supreme Court has recognized. So I think that informed this district court judge in this case that personal devices are deserve this heightened level of protection just because of, of how much information is contained uh, within them. Where does this likely go next? So my guess is that the government is going to appeal. First, there's going to be a hearing about whether the injunction will be nationwide. Mm. The Trump administration in general, led by Attorney General Barr, has been very adamant against nationwide injunctions. They're making sort of a nationwide effort in a whole different bunch of cases to prohibit these types of nationwide injunctions. If there mm. is an injunction, I think the government would almost certainly appeal to the Court of Appeals. We would see if the Court of Appeals would issue a temporary stay on this decision pending um, what they decide. So it's, it's possible that, you know, today you have the right to not have a suspicionless search of your device at the airport. But if there's some sort of uh, temporary stay issued by a Court of Appeals, that right might be eliminated for a certain amount of time. But it would go up to that Court of Appeals. Uh, it would be heard probably by a, a three-judge panel of uh, appeals court judges, and, and they'll consider the record and the facts that went into this district court decision. Would it likely head to the Supreme Court? It's possible. So, you know, usually you'd have to see a circuit split to get a case come to the Supreme Court. That's that's more of a general rule of thumb. That's not always the case. The Supreme Court has ruled in on border searches, specifically in the context of the Fourth Amendment, how it qualifies as a special needs search. So, you know, because they've weighed in on the past, perhaps this would be an, uh, another opportunity for them to weigh in. But I'd say there's no guarantee that no matter what happens at the Court of Appeals level, that the Supreme Court would grant certiorari on, on a case like this. All right. I suppose for uh, folks who advocate privacy and so on, uh, this is an important win. It sure is. I mean, this is a case. The plaintiffs worked with the ACLU, the Electronic Frontier Foundation. They are some of the best privacy lawyers in the country. And, you know, so this was a, a big accomplishment, a big win for them and for um, privacy and civil liberties advocates. All right. Well, my story this week has to do with Google and some of the attention that they have drawn 
from the Department of Health and Human Services, specifically their Office for Civil Rights. Turns out that Google has a project called Project Nightingale, which... Like, why do they have to choose the scariest, most random-sounding project name? That sounds like a bizarre military (laughs) operation. So I suspect that they are referencing Florence Nightingale, who I believe is credited with being really the founder of modern nursing. So I I think that's probably what they're tying into. I see. Okay. At any rate, Google teamed up with Ascension, which is a healthcare organization. It's a a hospital system, specifically a Catholic hospital system. Uh, They operate in 21 states. And Google teamed up with them to gather patient data. And Google says that they're using this patient data to analyze the data and allow the folks at Ascension to better serve their patients, which sounds like a reasonable endeavor. Uh, Sounds like something that you you would want to do for the good of people. But as you and I have talked about before, we do have this thing in the United States called HIPAA, which covers uh, privacy when it comes to your medical data. And that is what HHS is interested in, whether this partnership could perhaps be in violation of HIPAA. What do you make of this, Ben? Yeah, it's it's a really interesting case. I mean, first of all, Project Nightingale is pretty intensive. They're including patient data, it's not just, you know, completely anonymized data. It's from this article, it claims that it includes names and birth dates. And the goal, according to Google and uh, Ascension, is to help deliver more targeted medical treatment. That language is important because the way HIPAA works, health systems and hospitals are able to give HIPAA-protected information to third parties if those third parties are going to use that information for a clinical purpose. Hmm. Uh, or to support clinical activities. So if they were to use this information to further medical research or for some other reason that would uh, assist with patient care, then it would be HIPAA compliant. Where it would not be HIPAA compliant is if Google were collecting this information for non-clinical purposes, such as give me all of the people who have, you know, heart conditions uh, right. and we'll we'll put Lipitor ads. Right. I, I keep using the same company. I, I should think of a different <laughs> example. Yeah, but that's the thing here, right? I mean, that if I suppose if it were some data analytics company that we no one had ever heard of that wasn't in the business, the primary business of selling ads, probably people wouldn't notice. They'd say, oh, this is fine. Ascension is partnering with someone to analyze the data and deliver better health care. But when it's Google... It kind of makes us raise our eyebrows and think, well, they certainly have an interest in vacuuming up data for their own selfish purposes. Right. And that's, you know, I would say that's one of two reasons why this seems so suspicious. Uh Uh, Yeah. So the fact that it's Google makes all the difference in the world because every single person virtually in this country sees Google advertisements. So if we see that our personal medical information is being given to Google as a third party, we're probably not that concerned as to whether they intend to use it for clinical purposes. They have it, and that in and of itself is going to be a concern. The other concern is that doctors and patients were not notified of this partnership. Mm. Now, in some ways, that makes sense. The hospital system and uh, Google came to an arrangement. Um, They probably wanted to prevent blowback from patients and doctors about invasions of privacy, but they still wanted to uh, conduct this work to develop more (laughs) robust medical records. So, But isn't that like if I really want to have a chocolate chip cookie, so instead of asking my mom if it's okay to have it, I just take 
take the cookie. Yeah. Uh, as somebody who has a young child, that strategy right. does not work uh, okay. for them. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. So I think that's sort of one of the reasons why it caused so much alarm. So, yeah. You know, one thing that's worth noting is these types of relationships exist in other contexts. Other hospital systems, I think this article mentioned the Mayo Clinic, have entered sweeping partnerships. Mayo Clinic entered a partnership with Google to store its data in the cloud, to use Google's analytics tools to analyze clinical information. In that case, they Mayo Clinic insisted that the data would be anonymized, which seems to not have been the case when we're talking about Ascension Health. So, you know, this is something that's not wholly out of the ordinary. And it's authorized under the law with this clinical use exception, which is a, I wouldn't call it a loophole because I think it's a legitimate purpose. We would want these third-party companies to use what they bring to the table, which is, you know, analytical capabilities, technological capabilities to aid in clinical outcomes. Yeah. But it would be nice to get informed consent from patients and doctors. Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting tension there because obviously when you go for informed consent, you're less likely to get the number of people that you get otherwise. Right. And the data is only going to be useful. You know, it's going to be more and more useful the larger sample size you can get. But then again, you know, this article mentions that 150 Google employees have access to this this treasure trove. I mean, when we're talking about a, a hospital system that's in 21 states, mm-hmm. um, I'm guessing we're talking about millions of health records. So, you know, the fact that 150 Google employees have access to those records, including names and birth dates, You know, I could see why somebody would be like, I support clinical research. Uh, I support using analytical tools to improve medical outcomes. But this is just a step too far. You know, perhaps it's not worth it, even if there are medical benefits from this type of relationship to have uh, all of this data taken without informed consent from the patients. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's interesting. The Wall Street Journal originally broke the story about this. And I suppose the system is working in the way it should in that the Department of Health and Human Services is taking a look at this. And that's how we want things, these things to play out. Absolutely. So that's that's very promising. HHS is analyzing this relationship to see if there is evidence of a HIPAA violation. That's what regulatory agencies are for. I don't know exactly how the Wall Street Journal got their hands on this information because it seemed to have been secretive and not shared with Ascension employees. I'm wondering if it came from some sort of anonymous leak. But yes, I mean, as soon as HHS got a hold of this information from the media, they immediately announced that they were going to conduct an investigation, which I think is is promising. Like I said, that's what HHS is for, is preventing abuses of our federal statutes. Right. All right. Well, that's certainly one to keep an eye on to see how that one plays out. Uh, It's time to move on to our listener on the line. Our listener on the line this week is Tony from Buffalo. Uh, He calls in and he has this question for us. Hi, this is Tony from Buffalo. If one of my friends or relatives hands me his laptop to fix, would it be legal for me to download his personal documents, like his tax returns or financial records? No, that's an interesting question, Ben. What do you make of this? So to be a nice person, you probably just should not do that. But, yeah, uh, yeah, not good to be poking around on someone else's device. No, and I would, <laughs> I would, I would say, you know, Tony to Buffalo, whether this is you or, or a friend of yours. Uh-huh. Um, right, asking for a friend. Yeah, yeah asking for a friend. Uh, <laughs> if you're given a computer for a limited purpose, I would not download somebody's personal information. Right. However, um, because this is a law and policy podcast, I'll answer this in the context of what's called the Computer Fraud and Abuse 
Abuse Act, uh. which prevents unauthorized access to personal information. The way the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act works is there can be criminal or civil penalties if you have, uh, even if you've been granted access to a device for a limited purpose. If you glean information from that device that goes beyond that limited purpose, you are violating the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. Mm. So, you know, if you work in an IT department and somebody gives you their laptop to fix some sort of hardware issue and you download their personal files, that would be a Computer Fraud and Abuse Act violation. Now, I suppose if that laptop belonged to the organization, if that was your work laptop, all bets are off, right? I mean, yes, that, that's, that's completely different them. if it's not yeah. your personal laptop, because I'm sure the nature of the agreement with your employer is that they retain access to the information on their computer. They have yeah. the right to check it at any time. But when we're talking about a, a personal device, I think this would run afoul of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. The other question related to this is, does the act apply to somebody's personal device? So originally, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act only applied to government computers. Uh, hmm. The act was amended to account for the dot-com boom in the 1990s to include any device, whether private or public, that is connected to the internet. So, you know, it's sort of interesting that perhaps the rules would be different for a device that did not have a wired or wireless connection to the internet. That's interesting. But, you know, I'm not sure how, how a court would come down if, let's say, somebody had had access to the internet, had, you know, their TurboTax files in there, but happened to be in a place where there was no Wi-Fi, and so they weren't connected at that moment. Yeah, yeah. Um, what about these cases where folks have taken their computers in to have them repaired at, you know, the local computer shop, and those repair people stumble across illegal things, you know, child pornography or something like that, and they feel an obligation to report that to the police. How does that play into all this? According to the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, they would still be potentially criminally or civilly liable because that would exceed the authorization given to them to look at that device. Huh. In the real world, there would probably be some sort of process where you could be a whistleblower and give that information to the government, right. um, and you could do so anonymously without the government worrying about violations of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. You know, we talk about things like inevitable discovery. That could be something that a court could use. They could say whether it was the guy at the computer repair shop who came across this or anybody else, it was inevitable because this child pornography was contained on this device that it was going to be discovered. Huh. So therefore, it can be admissible in court. But from a technical standpoint, <laughs> if that was a connected device, that would be a violation of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. Yeah, I, I heard one just in the past couple of weeks where there was a woman had taken her, I believe her iPhone into the Apple store for some work. She, she went to the Genius Bar. Was it Rudy Giuliani? Or? I do not believe it was. Okay. No, no, this was outside of uh, his technical support needs. Mm -hmm. But um, uh, on her device were some private, personal, intimate photos of herself. And uh, somehow the person on the, at the Genius Bar saw these photos and copied them and posted them online. I th believe the person at the Apple Store quickly lost his job. But way, way out of bounds there, right? Yeah, I mean, that is a facial attack against the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act because you're abusing what your limited access was for, which was to, to fix that device. And it is a data privacy protection law. It's limited in its applicability, but it is one of the strongest data privacy protection laws the federal government has on the books. All right. Well, thank you to Tony for calling in with the question. 
Coming up next, we've got my interview with Brett Cohen. He is from Tier 1 Cyber. He's got some interesting insights on some of the parallels between data security and privacy laws and environmental legislation. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. Ben, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Brett Cohen. He is the president and CEO at Tier One Cyber. And uh, our conversation centered on some of the interesting parallels, things I'd never really thought about before, about data security and privacy laws and some of the things we've learned along the way from environmental legislation. Here's my conversation with Brett Cohen. When I've been talking to folks who are focused on the privacy side of cybersecurity, when it comes to things like data retention, I've heard people say that we need to change our mindset from this thought that we should be collecting and keeping all sorts of data, that that rather than data being valuable, maybe we should think about data as being radioactive, that it has potential danger to it. If we get too much of it in one place, bad things can happen. Uh, do you think there's something to that argument? Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, I think we're at a point where companies are are looking for guidance what to do with all of this data. You know, business has been largely unregulated with their data and they're figuring out new ways to use it and they need some guidance on how they should be regulated in this area and consumers need that guidance as well. We're over a year now into GDPR, and California has their own data privacy law that they're spinning up here. What do you think we're seeing from that point of view, the effect that that's had on how companies are handling storage and retention and even their relationship with data and privacy? Sure. I think companies are still trying to figure that out, quite frankly. You know, in particular, uh, kind of medium sized businesses, those businesses in the, you know, 50 million in annual revenue to, you know, 200, 250 million, they're not sure exactly how to handle their data, how GDPR really applies to them or doesn't apply to them. And, you know, with uh, CCPA coming uh, on board here shortly, they're equally as confused, quite frankly, which is exactly why, you know, there's been a, a push for the national privacy legislation. Do you think we're headed in that direction? Do you think we'll see a national legislation for privacy? 
Absolutely, I do. I mean, it seems on a weekly basis, there's a different bill proposed. I believe in the last week or two, there was a bipartisan, not bill proposed, but information. The New York Times was reporting that uh, they're working on a bipartisan proposal. Now, I don't necessarily see it happening, you know, obviously this year or even next year for various, you know, political reasons and uh, distractions, if you will. But certainly, you know, I think 2021 in particular, where we're primed for it, businesses are ready for it. And it's uh, something that I think we all deserve. It's interesting because some people I've spoken to are, are skeptical that Congress will be capable of putting something together like this. The dysfunction, their inability to pass anything right now, that that will keep them from being able to do anything and that we'll have to rely on the states. Do you think that's a possibility? Uh, in the short term, yes, but certainly not in the, the long term. I mean, here's really where the parallels between the environmental and the, the privacy law are kind of align, uh, you know, privacy, uh, environmental law, sorry, you know, 50 years ago, it really needed a bipartisan effort. There was a lot of debate of whether or not something could actually get done, but it did get done. You know, uh, they created a, a system, they, they went out there kind of out on a, on a limb, if you will, but there was a real need for it, a, a need for it for uh, company's sake, for competitive sake. And, you know, I think we're going to see that on the privacy front as well. There's going to be a, a real demand for it, a, a need for it, not only for consumer's sake, but in particular for for businesses. Uh, and as we're seeing GDPR and CCPA, I think actually those laws will drive us to a national privacy standard because there are still aspects of those laws that are undefined, quite frankly. So I think once those are on the books and businesses have a little bit of experience trying to comply with them, that that will make this uh, much more obvious and needed as we move forward. Yeah, it's interesting to me that it does seem like that rare bit of policy interest that has genuine by policy support. It's it's non-controversial, these notions of privacy and uh, security. It seems like both sides can get behind that. Absolutely. You know, I think there is obviously a, a big business interest from some of the, the larger companies in getting this done and getting this done in their manner. But, you know, I think in particular, the, the small and medium-sized businesses really need this. And if we can create a, a level playing field that will uh, certainly benefit all. And I think it's up to our legislatures to uh, demand that from the larger companies, from all the different stakeholders to get something that really is truly bipartisan through. What are some of the specific challenges that face those small and medium-sized businesses when it comes to dealing with these issues? I think it's a matter of resources uh, to put to it. You know, if you have all these different standards, lots of different state standards, and they're all, they vary in different ways, then it makes it very uh, expensive and complicated for mid-sized businesses to try to figure out how exactly to comply with them. And then even with the CCPA, for example, it, it has a provision in it that companies have to have reasonable information security controls, protocols in place. You know, exactly what does that mean? How are medium-sized businesses supposed to figure out what cybersecurity framework they're supposed to follow? 
you know, how do they limit their liability? They want to do well. They want to do right to buy their clients, consumers, but they're having an awful hard time or they will have an awful hard time figuring out exactly how to comply with vague standards. What are some of the lessons that we can take from environmental policy of days past and and even how things function in that zone these days? What are some of the lessons we can use for that when it comes to cybersecurity? I think one of them is uh, this concept of unintended consequences that we saw with environmental law. Some of the environmental laws were very you know, broad in scope, and they didn't necessarily take a, a holistic point of view when they were initially passed. So, for example, there would be a regulation for regulating the clean air, and it'd be very strict and stringent, and company would sort of try to apply, but it would create more hazardous waste. And then we didn't necessarily pass laws at uh, the right time to regulate the hazardous waste. So, you know, kind of applying that to the data privacy world, you know, what information will be protected? How will it apply to different size entities? And in particular, I'm interested in the liability portion of all of these proposals you know, what if companies do comply, but they have a cyber event, a breach, because as we know, it's difficult to protect against these things, difficult to create a foolproof system. So if they are breached, you know, does that mean that they still have liability? What assurances can we give mid-sized businesses? And a lot of these liability issues uh, have been kind of evolved and been dealt with in the environmental sense and can teach us a lot of lessons for data privacy. The more you sort of go through the issues there, I think it really is a fascinating analogy that you have both local issues. You know, if I have a factory that uh, inadvertently lets something, you know, spill into a, a local river, well, that's a that's an issue. But also, that's the kind of thing that can cross borders. If something's released into the air, if you have pollution or something like that, then, well, then you've got, uh, you know, your neighbors, your national neighbors that could have something to say about that. And I, those are very similar things to the kinds of things we're dealing with in the cyberspace. No, absolutely. And, you know, back to the liability point for data privacy, do we create a, a kind of a strict liability system that if a company does get breached, that they still have to fix the consequences and pay penalties? Or do we create some sort of safe harbor where companies, we lay out standards that if they um, comply with and they meet this uh, kind of a reasonable threshold that they're exempt from liability, they might still have to fix some of the problems, but they've basically done everything they can do. You know, on the environmental side, we have a little bit of both. We have some aspects that are strict liability, you're responsible no matter what. And we have other aspects where if you pass certain standards, you still have to clean it up per se, but you don't necessarily have the penalties associated. What are your recommendations for those small and medium-sized businesses who are trying to navigate the environment right now, kind of hanging in there while these things shake out? Any words of wisdom for them? 
I would recommend that they do the best they can do. I mean, that sounds like an, an obvious point, but, you know, I think a lot of these uh, new regulatory systems promote this kind of reasonable compliance standpoint. So you have the, the technical aspects, which are fairly straightforward to follow, quite frankly. But then when it comes to their reasonable you know, information security standards, what exactly should they follow? Interestingly enough, this is somewhat analogous to the, the Department of Defense. The Pentagon has implementing a, a new cybersecurity certification. It's called CMMC, Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification. Mm. And they're requiring that for all of their contractors and it's basically uh, sets forth protocols, different controls that the companies have to have in place and certifies them at different levels. So, you know, back to your question, I, I think these small and mid-sized companies can basically pick a framework. Maybe it's CMMC, maybe it's NIST, maybe it's ISO. There are, you know, lots and lots of different frameworks, but pick a framework do the best you can do to comply with that. And that should be, you know, I won't say good enough, but that's a good, a good standard and a good starting point for them in trying to navigate these seas as it still becomes more known. All right, some interesting things there, Ben. What, what do you think? Yeah, definitely interesting. I'm maybe not as bullish as Mr. Cohen is on the chances for national data privacy legislation. I do think there is a desire out there, as he said, on the part of uh, users and on the companies for a national standard. Maybe I just have a lack of institutional trust in Congress to solve a really <laughs> important issue like this, especially when you're dealing with potential landmines. Uh, he talked about liability as one of them. And, you know, you're going to get a lot of angry lobbyists and, and constituents if companies are going to be held strictly liable for data breaches. That's something that might frighten a member of Congress. I might not be quite as bullish uh, as he has on the chance for a national standard. Right. You know, what's what's interesting to me is that in some ways the CCPA might turn into the de facto national standard the way GDPR turned into the de facto international standard because if you're forced to comply with the CCPA, whatever practices you're going to change to comply with that uh, in the context of California, you're necessarily going to change those for the other 49 states. Yeah. Um, so it's almost like a, a race to the top, which is better than what we often see, which is the race to the bottom. You know, there's <laughs> like there's a reason why all the credit card companies are located in South Dakota, right? Right, and, right. Yeah, um, and why all businesses are incorporated in Delaware. So, you know, I, I think that aspect was was interesting. The constitutional nerd in me, which always comes out, <laughs> uh, especially on this podcast, got me thinking about when he was making the comparison between environmental laws and data privacy, got me thinking about the Commerce Clause and hmm. why the founders included it in the first place. You know, our federal government was supposed to be one of limited powers, enumerated powers. But one of those powers was to regulate interstate commerce. And the reason is interstate commerce was an issue of national applicability. So we needed to have uniform national standards that we could conduct business across states. And I think in the context of both environmental legislation and data privacy, you can see why that's so important. Yeah. The winds can flow from Virginia into Maryland. The water can flow from Pennsylvania into Maryland. And so right. these are issues that are cross-cutting across state lines. And so it would make sense from a constitutional perspective for Congress to be empowered to come up with a solution. 
One of the things I found really interesting about what Brett had to say was about unintended consequences. And it reminded me of uh, this funny thing that I think happened with GDPR, where, you know, you have a right to be forgotten. Well, if you have a right to be forgotten and there had to be verification that you've been forgotten, how do they verify to you that you've been forgotten if they've forgotten you? That sounds like a, right? quite, quite a tongue twister there. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, if so how do you maintain the data that documents that someone has been forgotten if they've requested that their data be forgotten? Yeah, it's a bit right? of a catch-22. <laughs> it, it is. Because that very is. request is, is going to be on the record. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so, you know, th- that to me, that's the sort of conundrum that you can end up with with these sorts of things. And that's an interesting point. Brett yeah. Made. And all of these laws have unintended consequences. You know, yeah. usually you discover them several years down the line. This is not limited to data privacy. Right. All federal and state laws end up having some sort of uh, loophole. And that's why, you know, they're amended in the future. I think one thing that's unique to data privacy is because this is such a relatively new area. States are supposed to be our laboratories for democracy. So right. if California is our laboratory, we're going to look to them to see if their legislative language language was clarifying enough for compliance. And Mm -hmm. if there are those unintended consequences and, you know, those are lessons that the federal government and the other 49 states can take. But, you know, to to extend the metaphor, California is a very large lab. You know, it's like the largest lab in the science wing of your uh, local college. So, you know, (laughs) right, right. If looming over everything because of their scale. So if there's like a massive (laughs) chemical explosion in that lab, you know, those those chemicals are probably going to leak into the Nevada room and uh-huh. the Oregon room and, and yeah. into the Arizona room. <laughs> I, I think that creaking sound you hear is us stretching the metaphor beyond its breaking point. <laughs> yes, that's absolutely true. We should stop before it gets worse. Yeah. All right. Well, let's leave it there. Our thanks to Brett Cohen from Tier 1 Cyber for joining us. Uh, really interesting insights there. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. The Caveat Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our thanks to the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security for their participation. You can learn more at mdchhs.com. Our coordinating producers are Kelsey Bond and Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening.